so good to be here. What a great campus. You know, the note, um, I preach around in the campuses a little bit and uh, the only way I find out that I'm going somewhere is my name turns up on a roster that appears every couple of months. So when my name turned up on this one, I thought, yes, come and get the source. But you know, it's before COVID was the last time I was out here. What have you been doing all those that time, okay? So we made it. Well, we're not through yet, but we made it, didn't we, eh? So thank you so much for the opportunity to be out here. What a great team, Pastor Janine and Steve on holidays, but they are good people. I hope over the last 12 months, you know, you've fallen in love with them. They are awesome, awesome people. And of course, the guys, Dan and Sam and Lisa and Catherine and the guys, you know, what a great team we have here. You know, what a blessing. So thank you. Thank you for the invite to be here today. So today I want to talk uh, about salvation from Ephesians chapter 2. But before we do, uh, I'd just like to pray and just uh, open up our hearts that God will speak to us. So Father, we thank you so much that we can come together as family and come around your word. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you live inside of us. And we pray that you'll take these words that you wrote and we pray, make them alive to us. You know what you meant and what you wanted to communicate to us. And more importantly, you know what is relevant to us today. And we just make room for you. We honour you. And we pray, come and take your word, make it alive in Jesus' name. Amen. I love Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 is a, a great chapter. And, uh, you know, just before we get into the chapter, you know, Paul is writing to Gentiles who have become Christians. But what he's trying to do to highlight what God has done in their lives, he starts off by describing what they were like before they were Christians. And so when you look through this chapter, there's an alternation of tense. It starts off in the past and then gets to the present. Then he goes back into the past again and then back into the present and so on. And so when you see what he's doing, it sort of makes what God has done stand out that little bit more when we make that comparison. So let's start off verse 1, of course, and uh, talking about our past. He says there in verse 1, Ephesians 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once worked. doesn't start off too exciting, does it? We're dead already. Uh, and you've walked uh, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. doesn't seem to start off too well. He says there in verse 1 that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we walked. You know, this whole idea of death, we tend to think of death as the end of everything. But, you know, even in the physical, it's not the end. When someone dies, it's not they finish, but it's simply their spirit separates from their body. The idea of death in the Bible is the idea of separation. And so it says we were dead in our separations, in our trespasses and sins. It means we were separated from God. Think about it. Before we became Christians, we might have thought a bit about God or, you know, thought about Him every now and then. But really there was no ongoing relationship. We were separated. We were kind of isolated. There was, if you like, a barrier between God and us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And I, I like the words that Paul uses, trespasses and sins. It's two different facets of what we were like. And the first one, trespasses, we relate to that. We put signs up on fences that say, trespasses, 
prosecuted. Now, we know what it means to trespass. To trespass is to know you're not supposed to go there, but you want to anyway, so you just climb over. Now, of course, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the person next to you. Give them a nudge and go, yeah, that's you. You were like that. You were someone who climbed over the fence to where you weren't supposed to be. But isn't that a picture of us? Sometimes we knew what was right, but we weren't interested in that. And we deliberately chose to do what was wrong. That's the idea of trespasses. But the other word he uses, I like this word too, it's trespasses and sins. And this word's a totally different idea. And this idea is the idea of shooting an arrow, but not pulling the bow back far enough so that when you let go of the bow, the arrow hasn't got enough energy. And instead of getting to the target, it falls short. And what a great description that is of what we were like before we became Christians. Like sometimes we were actually trying to do the right thing. Sometimes we were on our best behaviour, but as, as try as we would, oftentimes, even though we were trying hard, we still messed up and oh, we fell short. And as a result of these trespasses, as a result of these sins, we were separated from God. So Paul says we were dead, isolated from him in our trespasses and sins. I like what Stott says. He was a commentator and he says that we were, before God, we were both rebels and failures. What a way of summarising it, hey? These words, we were rebels and failures. Then he goes on with some more bad news. Verse 2, I promise it gets better, okay? It does get better, I hope. Verse 2, it says that we were enslaved. It says we once walked following the course of the world. We were enslaved to what we'd call worldly thinking. What's worldly thinking? Well, it's, it's thinking that hasn't got room for God. I remember as a non-Christian looking at Christians and thinking they were weird. Kind of think of it. I still think that way sometimes, but none of you guys out here, okay? Other campuses, you know. But, you know, we just didn't get it. Like, I used to look at Christians and think, why on earth would they go to church? That's boring. And they weren't into the things I was into. And I actually looked at them and thought their lives were kind of empty because, you know, they weren't into things I was into. But thank goodness I didn't stay there in that ignorance. But, you know, now... I know what I was missing out on. Now I know that, hey, there's more than what I understood. There's more to life than the things that I was so wrapped up in. You know, I was, I was bound up by a way of thinking that had no room for God. In fact, enslaved to that. Couldn't get outside of that. Needed God's intervention to break me free of that. Then he says, not only were we enslaved to the world, but we were enslaved to the devil. Verse 2 goes on and says, we were following the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, uh, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You know, the devil is described in the Bible as, uh, as, as an evil angel who is opposed to God and opposed to us. And, and uh, originally he was, he was under submission and so on. But, and we see him first appear in the Garden of Eden where God puts Adam and Eve, the first humans, in this perfect garden and says they can enjoy all of it except eating from one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the devil came along in the form of a serpent and he tempted them and sadly Adam and Eve fell and in that fall they actually gave authority 
to the devil. Prior to that, they had rule and reign over everything, dominion over the world. But as they submitted to him, unknowingly, they gave him authority over this world. So although God made this world and is ultimately in control, right now the devil is behind most of what happens in the world. He's called the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world. And because we are descendants of Adam and Eve, we're born under that dominion as well. We were enslaved to the worldly thinking. We were enslaved to the devil. And lastly, it says there we're enslaved to the flesh. Verse 3, it says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And, and, and you know, our bodies are not bad. Our bodies have been made by God with, with desires and needs and so on. And they are all good. The trouble is, in our pre-Christian state, we take what is good and we push it too far. And in fact, we become bound to those things. They become the things that dominate us and we actually get enslaved to excess. Again, I'm talking about your neighbour now, not you, okay? You were never like this, but they were, I'm sure. So we were, the bad news is we were dead, separated from God. We were enslaved to worldly thinking, a mindset that didn't get God. We were enslaved to the devil himself and we were enslaved to our carnal natures that we couldn't break free from. They dominated our lives. But the good news is coming. There's one more bit of bad news, first of all, however. Verse 3 goes on to say, and as a result of this, we were by nature children of wrath. That means we were under God's judgment, which essentially is separation from him for eternity. We were under that and we deserved it because we were rebels and we were failures. But the good news comes now in verse 4 with those words, but God. They are fantastic words. But It was all gloom and doom, but God. Blow the trumpet, here comes the cavalry. But God changed Everything He says in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. What good news that is. We were separated, uh, not conscious of God, but Jesus came and broke through, if you like, and woke us up, if you like, so that now we were, once we were dead, but now we've become alive, back in relationship with God and enjoying all that he has for us. We were under his wrath, but verse 7 says, we're no, sorry, I'm jumping ahead of myself, looked away from the page too long, let's go back to verse 6, and it says there that we were raised up with him, and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You know, when Jesus rose from the dead, he also broke the power of sin for all those who say, I want that place. For all those who will submit to Jesus, we actually then inherit his authority. See, God became man, became one of us in the person of Jesus. And as a, he was fully God, but as also fully man. And as a man, he stood toe to toe to the devil and didn't yield for a second. 
so that amazingly, as a man, he, he overcame the authority and power of the devil. See, Adam and Eve, as I've mentioned, brought us under the authority of the devil, but Jesus, the man, took us out because he overcame the devil and for those who say Jesus come into my life I want you to be involved in my life we share in his victory and right now he's been raised up and seated at the right hand of the father with absolute and total authority and says I give that authority to you what an amazing thing. It doesn't make us perfect my goodness there's a lifelong of a lifelong process of change but it begins when we become a Christian. Prior to that, we could not change in, in fundamental ways. But now Jesus has set us free from that enslavement and we can walk free by faith in his name. We were dead, but we've been made alive. We were enslaved, but now we've been set free. And we were under God's wrath, but now verse 7 says we've been pardoned. It says, so that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We were under God's judgment, but and that judgment is death. But because Jesus died in our place, then God is able to free us and we move from being under God's judgment to being recipients of his grace. Isn't that good news? What a fabulous little power, you know, few paragraphs here. Starts off with us being dead, but we were made alive. We were enslaved, but we've been set free. And we were condemned, but now we have been pardoned. Love this passage. So we move on. Paul moves on in verse 12. And now he, he kind of talks about two groups of people. And to understand this, a little bit of background. In the Old Testament days, God loves everybody. But in order to reach into the world, he chose a man called Abraham. And he said to Abraham, if you will follow me, if you will have faith in me, I will bless you and make you into a great nation. And, and through that nation, I will speak to the rest of the world that I am the one and only true God. And that nation, the children of Abraham, we know them today as the Jews. And so they had covenants with God. They had promises with God, but, but they were the only ones who had it. If you were a Gentile, you could enter into that to a certain extent. We'll talk about that in a minute. But essentially, they had all this relationship with God and the rest of us are called Gentiles. We were outsiders. So Paul now speaking to these outsiders, he's talking about them and what had happened now that they've accepted Jesus. But again, their past relationship before uh, they opened up to Jesus, verse 12, he says, remember that you were at that time, you Gentiles, you were separated from Christ. And he says, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. They were outsiders, totally separated from God, not of the right group, total outsiders. And as a result, verse 12 says they were alienated, not just from the Jews, but from God. He says, having no hope and without God in the world. But the good news is he changes tense now again. And he says in verse 40, 14, talking about Jesus, for he himself, Jesus is our peace, 
who was made as both one, talking about Jew and Gentile here, made as he's broken down the distinction between Jew and Gentile and made as both one new man and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. To understand what this wall is about, let me talk a little bit about the temple. There is a point coming, but I'm going to have to lay some foundations, okay? So if we have a look at that first sketch there of the Old Testament temple, thank you. Here it is here. Now the temple was where God dwelt. God had always wanted to dwell with man. And so we see that in the Garden of Eden. He walks in the cool of the day, talking to Adam and Eve. And then later on, after choosing Abraham and his descendants, God asked them or told them to build a tent as they wandered around the wilderness. And that was called the tabernacle. He dwelt there. And then when they had their own land, more permanent, God commanded Solomon to build a temple. And this is the temple that we're talking about now. And the whole point of the temple was God would dwell there. But where did God dwell? He wasn't in all of the parts. He was in the what's called the Holy of Holies. And this is not quite the right shape, but I'm just showing you the different parts. And, and so, of course, the most important part of this temple was where God was, the Holy of Holies. Now, in that Holy of Holies, there was the box that was called the Ark of the Covenant. Not Noah's Ark. It was the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, don't get that confused. There's no animals here in this box. Okay. But inside the box, there were three things. There were, there were the stones, the tablets of stone, where God had written the Ten Commandments. They were in there. There was also a, a branch of an almond tree that had died. It was used as a staff. But going back in the Israel's history, there was a, a challenge on leadership amongst the elders. And God said, bring your staffs. And the, the staff that I bring back to life is the one, the leader. And that was Aaron's staff. And it budded. And here it was, oh, it was a dead stick. But now it's got buds and presumably almonds uh, on it as well. And that was in this box. And then the last thing in the box was a jar of manna. And and this manna was food that God gave the children of Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. This manna would appear every day in the morning and they would collect it and eat it. But God said, only collect what you need. Um, But some collected too much. And the trouble is, after overnight, if they collected too much, the leftover would go rotten. But it was supernatural because... On the Sabbath, they weren't allowed to collect it. So the day before the Sabbath, God says, collect twice as much. Oh, but it'll go rotten. No, just trust me. And they collected twice as much at what they need for that first day. And on the Sabbath, the next day, it didn't go rotten. Supernatural provision of God. Well, there was a jar with some manna in that that was as fresh as the day it was created there. All reminders of what God had done in their past. But the amazing thing outside of the box, on the top of the box, this is fabulous, the lid of the box was called the mercy seat. And then over the mercy seat, there were golden angels uh, that had their wings, and the mercy seat was here. And God's presence literally manifests itself above the mercy seat. I love that. Although God gave the law, And although he looked after the Jews in the past, it wasn't about the law, it was about the mercy, the mercy seat. Could you imagine going into the Holy of Holies? There was a a, a big curtain. They tell us maybe about a metre thick. It wasn't Arabian Nights curtain that you could see through. It was a huge, big, thick curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. Can you imagine sort of pushing past the curtain and, 
looking in. Well, you couldn't do that, could you? Because God himself was there. And only one person could go in there. And he could only go in once a year. That was the high priest. If you weren't the high priest, you couldn't go there. This was totally, absolutely out of bounds. And even the high priest only going in once could only go in taking a bowl full of the blood of a bull. And he'd go in once a year on the Day of Atonement and he would take that blood and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat where God's presence was. And that bull was dying on behalf of the nation for the sins. Remember, the, the, the consequence of sin is death. But the bull was dying in their place. And they would take the blood saying, here's the death on our behalf. Only one man, once a year, could go into the holy... This is tiptoe territory. This is... The presence of God is here. This would have been the most holy place on all the earth. What a place that was. My goodness. Then when we come out a little bit further... um, it was called the holy place. This was where the priests, the male priests, would go. And they would go in on a roster basis, sometimes depending on, maybe only once in their life, but they would go in on, on a roster basis and they would go in there and do the sacrifices, light some incense and pray and so on. But if you weren't a priest, you weren't allowed to go in there. This was, this was too holy for you, the rank and file. You had to stay out, but the priests could go in maybe once in their lifetime to go in and do these things to serve God. Imagine being in there. And you know that just the other side of that curtain is God's presence. What an amazing place to be. Well, if you weren't the high priest and you weren't a priest, then you couldn't go into either of those places. But if you're a Jewish male, you could go into the court of the Jewish men. Sorry, ladies, not allowed. Don't blame me. I didn't make this up, okay? This is what was going on back then. And so the Jewish men would go in there to pray and so on and, and to offer their sacrifices to the priests and so on. And so that's where the Jewish men would go. But if you were not a Jewish man but a Jewish woman, there was a place for you, but it was a little further away from the presence of God. And each of these places start with the highest place physically, the holiest holy, down to the holy place, the court of the Jewish men, the court is kind of symbolising up to God, well the ladies were kind of on the outside they tell me it was a very noisy place I have no idea why that would have been the case but there were the Jewish women, if they wanted to worship God they could but this far and no further you're getting the feel of this, there's a hierarchy of privilege, a hierarchy of access to the presence of God. And then if you were not a Jew, you were one of those Gentiles, those outsiders, you could still worship the God of Israel, but there was a court for you, which as you can see is the furthest out court. And there's a a, a very big uh, uh, wall around it that had gates in it. And above the gates, there were signs that said, any Gentile found on the other side of this gate will be put to death. They were pretty serious about that. And so if you were a Gentile, yes, you could approach God, but only from a distance. That's how the temple was set up. Well, let's have a look. Notice where the, um, there's the, he's highlighted for me. Thank you. 
There's the wall of the Gentiles. See the Western Wall there on that western side? I actually took a photo. I was in Israel quite a few years ago now. Let's have a look at that photo if we can. Thank you. Just to look what's left of that Western Wall. Now, you've got to understand, Jerusalem was totally destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. So there's not many walls left from those days. But here's one of them that's left. And it's that Western Wall, the outside of the Gentile court on the Western side, as the name suggests. And notice... There's a whole lot of people going up to that wall. And if you look in that wall, the cracks, there are little prayer requests that are on, put on paper, shoved in there. And all the Jews now go and pray at that wall. They pray in other places, but this is one of the places they go. And notice there's the kind of a white lot of chairs in the middle. Sorry, ladies, but the guys are allowed to go that side, but only the Jewish ladies on the right-hand side. There's still a division today as far as they're concerned. Okay. But so why would they pray there? Well, this wall is backing onto the temple area, which has been destroyed now. And there's a Muslim mosque and so on, and a shrine there on the other side. That golden dome is the shrine of the, the rock, dome of the rock, which is a Muslim shrine. So they can't go to where the Holy of Holies was, but it's just on the other side of that wall. And we did the tour. You can go through to the left here behind those buildings and actually end up underground in this big long tunnel. And you end up with a spot where they say here is the special synagogue because right here, just on the other side of this wall, is where the Holy of Holies was. Imagine standing there. It was an awesome experience. You're standing there, you go, wow. Just through there was where... God dwelt. So, of course, the Jews, they want to get as close as they can there to pray because in their mind, they're drawing near to God. Do you get that? So that's what, that was the background, okay, to explain what Paul's going to say now. He said in this verse, let's read it for you again. He says there in verse 4, Jesus is our peace who has made the Jew and Gentile, both one nation, taken away that distinction. And he says, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What's he talking about? He's talking about, if we can go back to the, the wall that's highlighted, thank you, the yellow version. Let's go a bit further. That yellow wall. Now, Jesus never broke it down physically. The Romans did that 30 or so years later. But in the spirit world, Jesus abolished the distinction between Jew and Gentile. So through Jesus, God was saying to us, you Gentiles, you don't have to stay on the outside anymore. Come on in. And so here it comes. The wall has been abolished. That was so good. We're going to see that again. Let's go back. That was a highlight of the, of the, of the day. I'm easily pleased, aren't I, hey? I'm nerdy enough to get excited by that. But anyway... Shall we do it again? Almost need a drum roll, but we'll be okay. Okay. Jesus has broken down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. Perfect timing. That's good news. We're no longer outsiders. We Gentiles are no longer outsiders. We can go in a bit further, which is absolutely fabulous but you know what it gets better than that now Paul doesn't say this in this book but he says it in another one the book of Galatians in chapter 3 he says summarizing these things he says there's neither Jew nor Greek that's that war gone there's neither slave nor free but here's the new bit there's neither male 
nor female, for you're one in Christ Jesus. So let's have a look at that. There was a wall that separated the Jewish women from the Jewish men. If we can look at that slide, thank you. Let's keep going. We've done that one. Let's go to the next one. And the next one, that's the one there. And that wall separated the Jewish women from the Jewish men. But Paul has just said there's now no longer male nor female. There's good news, ladies. There's good news. There it is. That wall is gone. In terms of relationship with God, there is no distinction between male and female. And all the ladies said, Amen. Amen. I scored some points right there, didn't I? Okay. In terms of access to God, God is saying, ladies, you have as much access as men through Jesus. Never were they second class anyway, but in our minds we think it that way. But Jesus said, no, 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 no second class. All have access to God in the Spirit. But you know what? Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on. In fact, it's Peter this time, the verse I'm going to quote from Peter, 1 Peter 2, where Peter talks about us as Christians, male and female. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. The Bible talks about you and me as being priests of God. So what is that going to do to our temple diagram? You kind of know what's going to happen now, don't you? Let's go to the next diagram, please. There was that divider that divided the rest of the people from the priests. They could Only the priests could go into the holy place. But now in Jesus, that's been taken out away. Sure, there are people who are called in our context to be pastors, but that doesn't make them any more spiritual to someone who's been called a plumber. It's, it's an occupation, it's a calling, but in terms of access to God and privileges with God, we all have the same. There is no distinction. Yeah. What an amazing thing. We are all priests to God in terms of relationship with Him. But it doesn't stop there. It even goes further in verse 18 of Ephesians 2, he says, So through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And that's talking about this last dividing thing, that which was, wasn't a wall, it was this big, thick veil. And we now have access to the Father. The Father was in the Holy of Holies. So through Jesus, that veil has also been taken away. What an amazing thing. We think about that holy of holies and we go, who could dare go into there? Well, only the high priest once a year. But friends, right now, today, we access the Father. We've been doing that while we've been singing and worshipping. We do that whenever we pray. God is always listening to us. We can go right into his presence what an amazing thing Jesus demonstrated this in the natural when he died it says the 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 veil literally was torn in two from top to bottom this was God saying come on in there's no Jesus death broke the barrier 
Sadly, the Jews must have gone in and stitched it back up. Okay, they didn't understand what was going on. But the veil has been torn. You and I have total, whether we're Jew, whether we're Gentile, whether we're male, whether we're female, we have total, absolute access to the Father. But you know what? It doesn't stop there. We're going to jump down. I think it's verse 20. Thank you. And it says there in chapter 2, verse 20, talking about the church now, it says, We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, talking about this temple, the church, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And here's the verse, verse 27. In Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God in the spirit corporately we are this dwelling place but also individually we are this dwelling place what does that dwelling place mean well it's actually not talking about the whole temple area but if we just show it with that name highlighted he's actually describing that place you and i when we become christians actually become the holy of holies we say it this way when i become a christian i invite jesus into my heart what's happening there is the holy spirit god himself comes and lives inside us think about that who are you who are you if you're a christian god lives in you not just when you come to church but when you go home today god is in you when you're at home tonight lying in bed and going off to sleep and maybe praying, he's there. When you go to work tomorrow, not public holiday tomorrow, when you've got a public holiday tomorrow, you don't leave him in church on Sunday, he's there in the public holiday with you. Whatever personal challenges you might be facing, he's there with you. All the time. Jesus said it this way, I will never leave you or forsake you. Who are you? You are sitting next to the Holy of Holies. They were dead, but now they're the Holy of Holies. That's who we are. What a chapter this is. It says starts off with us being dead, totally separated from God, enslaved to a whole range of things. And as a result, under God's judgment. But now, but God in his mercy, with his great mercy, though we were dead, has made us alive, made us sensitive, made us open to God. And, but not just that only. We were enslaved, but he has set us free through Jesus. And we were under his wrath, but now we're recipients of his grace. And in fact... He lives inside of us. What a great chapter. What a great God. That's who we are. We need to remind ourselves, because I, I don't know about you, but I can live plenty of days not even thinking about God living inside of me. But you know what? It makes a big difference if I think about that more. Hopefully it doesn't make us weird, but we realise he's with us in every moment of every day and wants to lead, wants to guide, wants to enable wants to be with us and involved in every aspect of our lives. 
What a good God. Let's just bow our heads in a moment of prayer. Thanks. Maybe you're here today and this has all been a bit strange to you. Sorry if we're strange. We can't help it. Maybe you're here and you're thinking, well, this, this makes a lot of sense, but I think I'm on the outside. I've never asked to be brought into the inside. I've never asked Jesus to come into my life and forgive me. You could change that today by simply praying a prayer. It's as simple as that. None of us are good enough. But all we need to do is ask God to forgive us and He will and ask Him to come and be involved in our lives. And in fact, He will come and live inside of us. And we do it simply by asking. And I'm going to lead us all as a congregation in prayer in a simple prayer that we'll all repeat after me. And if that's your heart and you've never opened your heart to Jesus, I encourage you to pray along with us. We're going to pray out loud too so that you don't feel embarrassed. And please pray along with us to ask Him to come into your life. So let's just pray now. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank You that You love me and You sent Jesus to die for me that I might be forgiven. I accept His death on my behalf today and I ask You to forgive me. Come into my life and help me to live for You. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just keep our heads bowed.